This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Hello there, gentle listeners. You're listening to The Law School Show, and this is Jake Clark. We have coming to us over Zencaster, Stephen Coelty. He is a family lawyer practicing and living in Los Angeles, California, and he's here to tell us about some of the exigencies of COVID-19's effect on family law, which has had some very diverse and very serious impacts on that area, as with many others. Stephen, how are you doing today? I'm great, Jake. Thanks for having me on. Now, just to to start, uh, I kind of want to ask about where you're coming from. So what is your practice, you know, when a global pandemic isn't raging? How did you come to your specialty and what sort of about family law draws you to the field? Well, I started in law as my third career. Right out of college in the early 90s, I was a group home counselor for emotionally disturbed teenagers in residential group home setting, assisting with day-to-day operations of how do you raise teenagers and also to make sure that their treatment programs were in place and, and going with their private therapist. After a few years of that, I caught the bug and went into the entertainment industry initially as a reality TV production coordinator and then moving into TV commercials and music videos. And then 90s, early 2000s, Uh, I decided that that was a business best left to the young, and I decided to either go to business school or law school. At the time, law school seemed like it would be a better return on investment. I focused in law school on commercial law. Uh, I won the Student of the Year Award for commercial law. I always imagined that I would be sitting in a room somewhere over dusty tomes, uh, UCC-type stuff, and uh, bankruptcy and commercial transactions, etc., And then what do you know, as soon as I get out of law school in uh, late 2005, early 2006, I had a couple of job interviews. One of them was for a family law firm. I needed a job while I was looking for that next bankruptcy gig. The rest is history. Uh, Family law really kind of worked to my advantage in terms of my education and background, dealing with children in crisis, dealing with productions, uh, films and, and commercials and music videos that are Everyone's always in crisis when you're when you're going through those. Uh, so it seemed to fit very well. That's uh, very interesting to hear. Yeah, I actually worked in theater a little bit before this myself. It's, it is very true. It's a very multifaceted series of problems you have to deal with. And as a family lawyer, uh, do you kind of see yourself then as this sort of generalist, this kind of problem solver? Well, yes. And the, the skill set that really helps is that while everyone else is going through crisis, you're keeping a cool head. So in family law people are generally not at their best, understandably. So I try to come to it in a somewhat business-like manner, as objective as I can be. There are limits to that, of course, and help the client make decisions that are in their best interest, things that they're not always able to focus on. And obviously those decisions can be very, very trying. Yep. All the more so now with COVID-19, whether you're talking about money, whether you're talking about children, whether you're talking about health and safety, those are always issues in my practice. And those are always issues that I'm focusing a lot of energy on. A lot less energy needs to be spent on, if you will, the stuff, uh, the physical possessions. Uh, Those can be important too, but they're not usually as near and dear to someone's 
heart and soul as their their kids or where their financial futures are are looking toward. I think crisis is a very interesting term to mention because obviously it's been very well used as a term to refer to COVID-19 and you mentioned sort of the impact of COVID-19. And by way of getting into these family law issues, I I would kind of want to ask how the American or Californian legal system specifically has reacted to COVID-19. Well, generally speaking, there that falls into a couple of sort of areas of time. When COVID-19 first hit, things were pretty normal. People were on their own in the, in the earliest days or weeks. I'm talking about like January and February into early March. Then literally the court system shut down, at least in, in California. Everything was shut down except for the most critical of services. Now, domestic violence, what we, what we call domestic violence here in California, a bit of a misnomer, but I'll talk about that a little bit later. And urgent emergency child custody issues the courts remained open for those purposes, but for nothing else. And a lot of people had their, for example, their child visitation terminated by one of the uh, one of the parents. And because there was not immediate risk of harm to the child and not being able to go over to dad's house or mom's house, uh, the court system sim- simply didn't deal with it. And that was a source of a lot of heartache for a lot of people, whether there was a genuine concern about COVID-19 related issues or whether it was merely an opportunistic place for someone to go to cut off visits, you were kind of left out in the dark. And that's only very recently come back into being with the court system somewhat reopening uh, as normal. There, there's a huge backlog still, but at least the most basic functions are, are back to operating. So when we're talking about the basic functions of family law, there's obviously relief for these, uh, for issues of domestic violence, violations of visitation. What is the thing that most starkly stood out as a sign that things could not proceed? Well, really, it was those in-between cases. I mean, well, when you're talking about domestic violence, uh, it's either happened or it hasn't. And at least in California, uh, it's pretty cut and dried. The severity is always changing and is always different but either domestic abuse happened or it didn't. So the court system was there for, for those victims. For custody and visitation, it was very, very different. Unless there was immediate risk of, obju- of uh, out-of-state abduction or there was immediate, generally considered to be physical harm to a child, there was going to be no relief for you at all. So people terminated visitations. There's no remedy for that. You can't go into court. The most you could do is ask the court to hear your case sooner than, you know, November or December. I had a client that didn't see his one-year-old child for three months. Just, I mean, I, I can't tell you, I can't express adequately the amount of pain that he went through trying to deal with that. Ultimately, we got it resolved, but that was five months later. So the system really kind of broke. Now they're doing things to fix that with technology and all of that. So it's likely that if this were to happen again, meaning, you know, a year or two from now, that the, uh, the impact would be lessened, I think, considerably. But um, there, for, for so many people, there was literally no justice. And would you say this exacerbated a series of problems that were already present or this blindsided the system completely? Well, it, it, I think it blindsided the system completely. I mean, we're still dealing with the fallout from the budget issues back from 
the last uh, economic collapse of the the late the late two thousands into the early two thousand tens. So courthouses are not adequately equipped because they haven't been able to put the money into infrastructure, and on and on and on. So even some of the things that they were trying to do, like electronic document processing, those had been miserable failures up until the COVID-19 pandemic. And then what do you know? Necessity being the mother of invention, things have rapidly improved. I mean, this really has brought the court system into the 21st century when, frankly, it was languishing in the late 20th century up to this point. Uh, silver lining, I, w- I wouldn't trade it, but you know, things are really are starting to happen. There's that to it, at least. At least. One thing that uh, you mentioned earlier, and I, I was hoping to sort of ease into this, uh, is the issue of of domestic violence. And in sort of our preliminary exchange here, there's a quote from the New York Times that described it as flourishing like an opportunistic infection under the pandemic. Uh, And I was wondering if you could explain that, like sort of explain the further issues of that sort of go into depth. Well, it's really sort of analogous to the the pandemic itself and, and sort of how people have treated it either seriously or not seriously. And that is, it really takes a couple of forms. On the one hand, you have a a certain dynamic between married couples or couples living together where one or both of them typically left the home for long stretches of time during the day, uh, whether going to work, going to school, uh, as the case may be. And so even where there might have been what I might call little problems, you know, things people get on each other's nerves, etc. There were these almost daily opportunities to get away, to separate, to sort of clear your head, maybe reset a little bit, get a different perspective at your job, come home, and, and maybe those problems didn't feel so intense or so pervasive. And, you know, I think there's a, a significant number of couples that that's sort of how they live their lives. They're content. They're in many cases happy, but life isn't perfect. Well, when you you take away that sort of relief valve of, of leaving the home and, and getting away from it all, and you're forced to essentially be on top of one another, those sorts of things never have an opportunity or, or not nearly so easily to go away and, and sort of habituate to. They're right there in your face. And in many cases, literally there is no escape. So those issues get exacerbated where there maybe wasn't any domestic violence before now, and what I call domestic abuse, because I think violence is too closely associated with physical violence. So I like to, and there's a a general tendency, a movement these days to move toward a, a domestic abuse, which people seem to understand is more multifaceted than just physical violence. These opportunities for domestic abuse to happen are increased. Even worse, of course, are cases where there was always some manner of domestic abuse, but the people just sort of dealt with it. They rationalized it. They viewed it as, well, you know, it wasn't that bad this time, for example. And there are many other examples. And so now suddenly the abuse is getting worse and worse. Verbal abuse turning into physical abuse disturbing one's peace, as we say in California, um, versus physical harm, things get worse and worse. Compounding that can be the loss of a job and the loss of income. So the, the normal everyday pressures that working families have become so much worse 
when money is an issue, when someone's lost their job, when the person that is the breadwinner, assuming there's one, or the greater wage earner that really kind of makes it happen at home, that frustration is bubbling over and the children see it and the spouses see it or the significant others see it. So it's it's sort of the perfect storm. You're, you're forced to remain together and there's no really good, obvious or, or traditional outlets out there to deal with this in a pandemic situation. I, I do want to ask for a bit of clarification on uh, disturbing the peace versus violence. Sure. Just to sort of understand how these things develop and how they're sort of grouped under the law. Could you unpack that a little bit? No problem. Um, generally speaking, this is a newer, and I, when I say newer, I mean the last, say, 10 years or so, a newer area of domestic abuse law. Disturbing's one, disturbing the peace, you know, you, you may associate from TV cop shows as, you know, being loud or noisy and the cops show up and, you know, you, you stop doing that. But in domestic abuse cases, it's really more of a disturbance of the, of the normal emotional calm that people are all entitled to have. There, there are some cases from California that illustrated as shattering the emotional calm of someone. So if someone is going around, and I'll take an absurd example because I think it, it, it's relatable. If someone's going around like a second grader and saying, you know, holding their finger up to your chest and saying, I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you, that after a while, as you know, <laughs> from our childhood experiences, really gets to you. And when that sort of thing or, or that kind of an analogy to other types of behavior in the home becomes just too much and you can't escape it, then that really is, it's a form of abuse. Now, I'm not talking about joking around. I'm talking about conducting oneself in that manner, which is designed to mess with the other person's head. Though it's not physical violence, though it may even arguably not be much more than annoying, it is harassing. And if that kind of behavior forms a pattern, then that's, that's real abuse that is happening. That sort of thing is much harder, at least in the, in the California system, to prove and have a judge be sympathetic to because these judges have seen horrible, horrible things. I mean, domestic violence judges in, in California have seen the worst of the worst. And when you come in and you complain that someone is making your life a living hell, but they're not laying hands on you, you've got your work cut out for you. It's real. It is a disturbance to your peace. You can't function as well when you're under that constant stress. So these victims are too often put in a position of having to just kind of quote deal with it because it's not extreme. But that has an impact on your daily life. And when it happens over and over again, uh, it can really affect your quality of life. So I want to ask sort of a two-pronged question here, uh, just sort of procedurally as a family lawyer, a client comes to you and says that this has been happening systematically for a while. How do you uh, respond to that normally and how do you respond now? Well, first and foremost, the same with any kind of domestic abuse case, you want to make sure you're building your case before you file any court papers. You, you can't just come in, and I imagine it's the same in Canada, you don't just come in and, and say... Uh, well, I'm, I'm going to testify that all these things happened. I mean, there's no substitute for that, but you have to have something to back it up to. Otherwise, it's just too likely to be self-serving testimony. You know, family law judges are expecting people to lie. They're not expecting everyone to lie, but they're expecting that they have to watch out for 
spin, shades of gray, partial truths, or, or outright lies. And they're, they're trained to watch out for those things, knowing that you build your case accordingly. So if you've got your nasty text messages or the, or emails, or if it's, if it's never, if you know, the abuser is smart enough and uh, it's difficult to find that kind of evidence, then having a a prospective client tell their significant other, stop, tell them to stop, tell, put it in an email. Hey, I don't, I don't appreciate you're doing this. I'm going to stand up for myself and I'm going to say, stop those sorts of things. You're, you're looking as the attorney, you're looking for evidence that you can show to the court that isn't just poor me, these terrible things happen to me because too often he said, she said, you know, there's still a, a, a weight of evidence issue. So there has to be something to tip the scales in. I'll, I'll say that in the post OJ Simpson world, there is a tendency more these days to believe victims. So that's a good thing. Sure, that can be abused. I think the the weight of the studies and evidence is that false claims of domestic abuse are few and far between. They do happen unquestionably, but um, they're few and far between. So there is a general tendency to believe the victim. But as the attorney, it's you know it's almost never there's almost never enough evidence to be completely confident that this is going to go the way it should. So you have to be very careful to build your case like that. I don't think much has changed in terms of how to approach a case since COVID-19. There are simply more cases. There's more abuse happening, no question. So there's more of it. But procedurally, everything is essentially the same as it was before the pandemic, during the pandemic, post-pandemic. I don't see all that much as having changed, just more of it. In the event of dealing with it now, there's just simply less ability because the courts are closed to press the issue. Yeah, there, there is a bit of that because there are fewer there are fewer judges, or there have been up until very recently. There were a lot fewer judges because they were, to, to some extent, either working from home or you know because the courts were mostly closed, they were ordered to stay home. There was some delay in getting orders out of the court. Now, I will say the plus side is that the court system reacted very quickly by accepting emergency domestic violence petitions by email. So you didn't have to actually show up to the courthouse. You could email over your papers and you would expect that either that afternoon or the following morning, you'd get an email back with your order. The one, I think, great disadvantage though has been an inability to have the victim show up in court, be there in the courtroom in case the judicial officer came out, had a question, needed clarification on an emergency petition, or frankly, just to see the, the victim's face, just to see that there's a real human being there. That was completely eliminated. There was none of that. You couldn't go to the courthouse. Hard to say, frankly, the impact that that may have had. I, I had uh, two or three domestic violence cases that came through during the heart of the pandemic, I got all of the orders that I was requesting. So I didn't have an opportunity to see that case that might have gone either way. But I can't help but know that there had to be those cases where because of that lack of human contact, there was maybe a, a temporary injustice done. Even a temporary injustice when you're talking about domestic abuse can have long, long standing consequences, as you may imagine. Previously, would there have been more resources available? Are there still, assuming that the procedure does go through, the, the application to the court is received and it goes through as it would normally, 
are there still resources available? Well, that's an interesting question, actually, uh, because the domestic violence self, uh, self-help centers were also closed. So certainly while those folks that could afford an attorney or had the resources to go to a sliding scale or, or free clinic, there was still some availability there. Logistically, you know, you still had to jump through some hoops. Those people were okay. But those people that needed to go in and have, for example, their petition typed up by either a clerk or a volunteer attorney at the courthouse that would be able to help them, that wasn't there for them for, you know, two or three months. I think we haven't yet learned just how significant that shutdown has impacted people. I, I think only as the, the COVID clears up and, and people, you know, sort of start coming out of their their homes um, and begin to live lives a little bit more normally, are we going to see what the real impact was? But I think there was, um, I think there were some lost folks out there that didn't get what they needed. And part of me doesn't really want to want to think about what happened to those folks. I, I just hope that they called law enforcement when they should have. I do know that law enforcement, at least here in Southern California, has been very responsive to these calls, especially during the pandemic. But that only gets you a maybe a three-day restraining order, not a, a three-week restraining order that the court could give you. I can imagine that it bears maybe not to dwell on it too much. Yeah, I, I agree. Sort of wondering on the effect of something that is less grievous, but still very procedurally important. Uh, when we were talking earlier, we mentioned the impact on alimony and similar other settlements, which is apparently quite deadlocked. Could you expound on that a bit? Well, there was, uh, at least in California, there was a, a lot of uncertainty about, wh- about what to do in the multitude of cases where someone lost their job, but they had a, a financial support order or some form of domestic support stipulation or agreement in place. And suddenly they had no money. They, you know, they can't pay it. And with the court system being shut down, how do you get relief from this? Well, thankfully, that didn't last but a few days or, or maybe a week or two before the court system sort of wised up and they put drop boxes at the courthouses. And they, they essentially, they created procedures where you could file quickly for relief from that support order, even if it was temporary. So that, that could get into place. Unfortunately, the delay between the time you file and the time that you seek a hearing, I think just about everywhere is long. And in the meantime, you are subject to those orders. So you run the risk of, you know, technically violating a court order while you're waiting for your court hearing, which, by the way, as you probably realize, also has an impact on the other side, who also perhaps doesn't have the means to support themselves. So that wreaks havoc on everybody. Or you keep paying, you know, you run up your credit cards, you borrow money from friends and family if you're lucky enough to have that kind of support system. But it really was not not something that, that the court was able to help with uh, nearly as efficiently as they normally do. And, you know, the court system's not all that efficient. It works. It doesn't work fantastically, but the court system does work. During a pandemic, it's not working at all. So your two-month or three-month wait to get a court hearing may turn into six months or, or longer before you get a court hearing. And in the, in the meantime, your options are very limited. So it's, it's difficult on everybody. There's no good solution other than sterilizing everybody and getting, you know, doubling the court staff. And, but none of those things are really feasible. So it, it's an untenable situation. Whenever the solution begins with sterilizing everybody, there tends to be a few blockages. 
I would yes, I would think so. Yeah, <laughs> simply simply bo boiling everyone and and saying, okay, now you're you're COVID free uh, would be lovely, but not practical. No, it's very interesting the issues around uh, alimony and you know support because they kind of lead into the issues around custody. And I'd kind of like to ask sort of, do those compound each other? Do issues about support, for example, like between a spouse or a child sort of compound into issues of custody and that in turn create these proceedings that can't really be answered as of yet? Well, I mean, that's that's interesting that you, that you make that connection. That's a connection that people make all the time. And in the legal circles, it's generally considered fairly taboo to conflate, for example, child support and child custody, or even child custody and spousal support. Okay. Linking linking money to custody is really not a good thing. And the, the judicial officers, the court system in general, really doesn't like it when someone says, I didn't let him see the kids because he wasn't giving me money. Or on the other hand, I want more time with my kids because I want to pay less money. Now, in reality, most people don't come right and say uh, come right out and say those things. The the judge has to figure it out either from the assistance of counsel or from hearing one of the parties blame the other. But yes, in fact, those sorts of things happen all of the time. Parents have ways of making sure that their kids know when mommy or daddy isn't paying uh, what they're supposed to pay, and that can impact their relationship with the other parent. Again, these are things that judges really, really do not like to hear, but they are part of everyday reality for a lot of families, unfortunately. I counsel my clients never to do those things. I advise them that the judge is going to find out about it. So be the cool cucumber in the room and don't let the other side rattle you. Don't be revenge focused because it's just going to end up hurting you. And it's also, it's going to hurt your kids. The COVID-19 pandemic has done a number, as I implied earlier, uh, there's done a number on families with regard to money coming in and also custody. So uh, they can't help but be related. But we, we try to make sure that they're uh, kept as separate as they can be in our in our court proceedings. Mm, of course, that's okay. That's very good to hear. That's a, definitely a noble and necessary distinction between those two things. There, there's a, there are enough attorneys out there that are, they're either hired guns, bulldogs, scorched earth, whatever pejorative you want to put on it. And not enough attorneys that are making things better for families. You know, if you're going into court, if you're in litigation, things are already terrible. People not seeing eye to eye, even, even in the best of times, two reasonable people differing. If you're in a court setting, things have, some, something's broken down somewhere. It's always good if the attorneys are assisting the parties to improve their relationship, even if it means you have a judge make a call. Sometimes that's what people need. They need a judge to make the call. And once that's done, you want to preserve that co-parenting relationship as much as you possibly can, even though maybe you were at each other's throat a couple of weeks ago in court. So I just try to make sure I never make anything worse and I usually make things better. And if I think as attorneys and, and the law field in general, if we have that as our focus, everyone's going to be better served. Certainly, that's definitely the hope, right? Yes, not always the reality, but always the what we're striving for. And speaking of hope, speaking of striving, I'd kind of like to shift gears to uh, the, the perspective, because you've mentioned that reopening is sort of commencing uh, in California. And I was just kind of wondering about some of the exigencies of that related to this, like if we can 
get into the ideas here. Are there some very distinct complications in the way of matters of reopening? Is there anything you'd really like to see, anything that you're concerned might happen? Well, that's a pretty broad question, but there's a, there's a lot of response to that. So I'll, I'll be as concise as I can. I, I mean, on the one hand, you have the most immediate physical safety issues. In my opinion, at least the uh, Los Angeles County court system has done an admirable job of accomplishing that, given the obstacles in the way of, of literally policing people and their actions. So enforcing social distancing, making sure everyone is in court, is there for a good reason, masks, et cetera, et cetera. Those things, those things are happening. I do still hear rumblings from other attorneys that, you know, there was somebody that was sick and they were very obviously sick in the courthouse today. And I'm in a, in a group of people that are susceptible. You know, it didn't seem like the bailiff was doing anything. Those, those sorts of stories, I think, are fairly few and far between. As I said, generally speaking, I think that's working. It, it, it'll never be perfect, but I think it's working. The more practical issue that we have is the access to justice. And though, yes, now we can file our papers, we can get court hearing dates. There's out of a sense of necessity, there's a triaging process that that has to happen. As I said before, domestic violence cases, immediate child custody needs, those are being taken seriously and, and the system is generally working. People that already have child custody orders that need them modified for a variety of reasons, either related to COVID or not, those people are having to wait. And that means those kids are having to wait. And in a variety of circumstances, those children find themselves in. So that isn't always working. The, uh, on the other side, the things that are, are, are just not getting done, you know, discovery motions, when you're, when you're looking for documents and someone's dragging their feet, it's going to be a few months before you get justice. You know, that may be easy to say, well, it's just paper, it's just money, but people need paper, people need money. And so that sort of justice delayed um, has a, a, a varying impact depending on what your needs are. And then at, at the far end, I've had a, a trial that was supposed to go forward. You know, last October, it got moved to March and then July and then November. And now we're looking at February. And everyone's lives are on hold. Thankfully, they had already resolved their custody issues so that the, the most immediate need did get addressed. But we still have financial issues, people overpaying support unsustainably. That's justice delayed. And there's a lot, a lot of very extreme, stressful situations that people find themselves in because the, the court system isn't working the way it's supposed to work yet. The prediction is it's going to be 18 to 24 months before we're sort of back to normal. And that was a system that worked good, you know, decent to good before. It's it's never been great. I, I, I defy anyone to tell you they've got a fantastic court system, at least in any major metropolitan area, but functional and accomplishing the, the ends of justice that it needs to. Uh, it's going to take a while to, to get back to normal. Everyone's sort of figuring out how best to get there. There are some bright signs as well. There are more opportunities for alternative dispute resolution popping up. People seem to be more in a mindset to settle their cases, or at least partially settle their cases, because they don't know when they're going to make it in front of a judge. So as people do, we're adapting, but it, there are some rather extreme challenges. So sort of to, to, uh, to cap this off, I kind of want to maybe invite a discussion here or just get your thoughts on this. If there is sort of a, a, something to be learned from this, like what would you say is the legacy of COVID-19 as you see it so far. What do you think will will sort of resonate in, in the law or even in society from this uh, this thing we're all going through? 
Well, I think on the one hand, you're going to see some, eventually, you're going to see some great strides in terms of technology, and then as a consequence of that, access to the law. So uh, for all the the bad things that are happening now and delayed justice and lack of access to justice, steps seem to be taken nationwide, and I imagine in your system as well, to make sure that this sort of thing never happens again, or at least that the worst the worst impacts from it are either negated or uh, placated somewhat so that the, the worst examples of the impact of COVID-19 don't have as much of an opportunity to take place. That's going to be hugely impactful on the access to family law courts, the access to family law judges, and something that you know budgetary constraints prevented in the past, now just existential necessity has caused to be much more in the forefront. So that's really a a good thing. Maybe not so good, but maybe along the lines of uh, another silver lining is that uh, with the tremendous financial pressures, emotional pressures that the COVID-19 restrictions have placed on anyone, on everyone rather, I think you're likely to see more people focused on what the kids are seeing, you know, the the fighting that goes on in the home, your kids see and hear that. Even if it's just, if you will, garden variety disagreement that doesn't necessarily rise to the level of abuse, your kids are still seeing that. It's not enough to say, well, the kid's young, he's not going to remember these things. Even very young children, what they see and hear impacts their personalities. They learn that For example, condescension is okay, that fighting, uh, especially unfair fighting, is is acceptable, is a part of life. And we don't want to normalize these kinds of negative observations that that children hear. So I think that the increased awareness of domestic abuse as a result of the pandemic could help with emotional health and mental health for people to realize what kind of impact they're having on on their kids. And lastly, I would say if there are issues about concern about reporting incidents of domestic abuse, I think people need to know that reporting it can actually help. And I say that because, um, at least with the court system as it is now, once domestic abuse is reported, everybody's under the microscope. You know, things that you say or do are going to make it in front of a judge someday, and wh- whether it's criminally or in the family law court. So that could be a first step for a lot of people that maybe didn't know what to do and, and maybe don't know what to do now because they're still cooped up with their abuser in the home. Reporting it can help. It's good for your kids. Uh, hopefully it's good for you as well. And usually, not in all cases, of course, but usually reporting it has uh, a positive impact even on the abuser who, at least for self-interested reasons, if for no other reason, will curtail their you know bad behavior. And that can be an improvement in the situation as well. So I think people, maybe because they are, they've run out of options because they're, they can't escape. I, I hope people hear that and take some action to improve their situation. It usually will improve their situation. One other thing, though, I wanted to mention, and that is maybe a little bit on the darker side, unfortunately. There have been issues with domestic violence shelters. And so physically escaping can be a problem under normal circumstances. It can be even harder for victims of domestic violence during a a pandemic when our movements are restricted. So hopefully everyone is responsible and we get a hold of this this pandemic sooner rather than later, because this pro- these problems aren't going away. And if anybody wants to confront these problems, if anyone feels inspired by this, it, do you have any advice for, say, a law student contemplating family law? Something you wish you'd been told? Well, that's an interesting question. I, I guess I, I wish I had been told that there are far too many 
contentious, cantankerous attorneys that you're going to run into that make life unnecessarily difficult. And I mean, maybe this is slightly off topic, but it's the first thing that came to my mind. We need more people in law school to come out of law school with a sense of civility and respect for the opposing party and for the opposing counsel. And I realized just by the very nature of the word opposing that that implies some sort of adversarial condition. It doesn't always have to be that way. And we can go a long way to improving our area of law by just being nicer, being more civil, which doesn't mean being a doormat or just doing whatever the other person says. You can still have a backbone and be civil to one another. I think that's going to help a lot. And if we have a generation of lawyers, and hopefully I'm around long enough to see it, that come out of law school with the idea of being respectful and constructive and not destructive and being a jerk to everyone because you're afraid they're going to be a jerk to you first or because you're afraid you're going to be perceived as being soft somehow. There are all kinds of ways to show that you're not soft. Do your research, learn your case, figure out where you've got a bad case and either improve it or or just, you know, when when you've done something wrong, the judges like nothing more than admitting that you do, you've done something wrong and Lay out your plan to improve it. But aside from that, we can be better people. So we should be. That's a fine sentiment to end this on. That's been fantastic there, Mr. Quilty. That's certainly given us a lot to think about. I hope so. If we want to hear more from you, do you have any other any other media, anything, any other points where you can share your observations? Well, I'm doing a number of, of blogs. I write articles. You can see all of that on my website. It's www.coweltylaw.com. It's much easier for your audience probably to remember that it also is burbankfamilylaw.com. It's the easiest way to get in touch with me. And I'm on the Los Angeles County Bar Association Board of Officers for the Family Law section. So look for more from me in the next two to three years as I take on the Herculean task of leading that organization uh, three years from now. No, right now I'm just trying to get through the pandemic and everything else is, is what it is. So I appreciate the opportunity to have me come on. As are we. We appreciate the opportunity to have you. All right there, Mr. Quilty. It's been wonderful to have you. And to all our listeners, it's been wonderful to have you listen in. I've been Jake Clark, and this has been The Law School Show. Cheers. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify, or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career-advancing advice right to your earbuds. Catch it all here. Next time on The Law School Show.